At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Ah, yes, the Nintendo Switch. This old girl might be the weakest system currently on the market, but damn does she backpack a punch. Rumor has it Nintendo are prepping the Switch's successor for a release in 2024, so let's take a look back at this unique console's incredibly strong run. Today we'll be covering a number of popular Switch games, including Super Mario 3D World, Mario Odyssey, Breath of the Wild, Pokemon Scarlet and Violet, and even the latest Zelda title, Tears of the Kingdom. But let's start out with one of the games that made so many of us buy the console in the first place, Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. If there's one game that Nintendo has supported post-release, it has to be Smash Ultimate. Introducing new stages, music, and fighters, the game expanded beyond what was already a roster of blockbuster gaming heroes, with the final character being none other than Square Enix and Disney's love child, Sora of Kingdom Hearts fame. With the introduction of any new character into Smash, Kirby must also receive consideration as a result of his copy ability, being able to inhale and take on the abilities and appearance of his victims. While Kirby can copy Sora's powers, he will not be granted the ability to wield Sora's iconic weapon, the Keyblade. And the reason for this has actually been explained by director Masahiro Sakurai in the past. According to a tweet which has been translated by Push Dustin, Kirby is unable to attack using a Keyblade because of the Kingdom Hearts lore. Only a chosen Keyblade wielder can wield a Keyblade. Because a Keyblade has a mind of its own, it's able to refuse to be wielded by anyone other than its chosen bearer, or those who hold a close bond to their chosen. With this in mind, and contrary to this official explanation, data within the game suggests that this wasn't always the case, as an unused Keyblade model in the game's data can be found intended for Kirby's hand. Despite the 3D model existing, functionally the Keyblade is unfinished. Even if modded into the game, the Keyblade will simply not spawn in. Disney's highly specific rules surrounding the Keyblade also altered the original plans for Sora's introduction into the Smash series, with Sora's original reveal trailer being set to play out somewhat differently. When making plans for the character's reveal, Sakurai had wanted the trailer to show Mario unlocking Sora's entry into the game by wielding the Keyblade himself. However, due to the specific guidelines that were provided by the team from Disney directly, this all had to change, because Mario is, surprisingly, not a Keyblade wielder within Kingdom Hearts lore. Speaking of Mario, as one of the most highly recognized characters in gaming history, Nintendo loves to sprinkle parts of his past into each new Mario title. This can be heard in Super Mario 3D World, where repeatedly hitting Bowser's broken car has a small chance of playing a randomly chosen sound effect from Super Mario World. There is a particularly small chance of a sound effect playing, with a 1 in 64 chance, and a pretty large number of possible sound effects, with 32 in total that can be played when one does, making it highly unlikely that any player has ever been able to hear them all. We mentioned before how the Switch isn't as strong a machine compared to its competitors' hardware, but this next tidbit demonstrates how that isn't such a big deal. Super Mario Odyssey is Mario's largest adventure yet, and being on Nintendo's latest hardware, one would expect an increase in graphic fidelity but in fact, the model used for the coins in-game is actually 65% simpler than those used in the earlier Super Mario Galaxy game released on the Wii. This is because the coins are able to be rendered in a much more visually appealing manner by taking advantage
advantage of modern rendering techniques, rather than simply introducing more polygons to make it smoother. Instead, by using a normal map, the manner in which light reflects on the object can be manipulated through using a rather simple texture image, instead of the more rendering intensive polygons being displayed on screen. Nintendo do love their rare chances of something being seen, perhaps they like the idea of kids telling their friends about something on the playground, only for every other kid to turn around and tell them they're full of it. Odyssey has a particularly strange occurrence that many have likely never seen. As I was saying, if Mario remains idle for a long period of time, he will, as is tradition, fall asleep. When sleeping in an area which has birds, typically most exterior locations in the game, one of the birds in the area will eventually fly over and land on Mario's nose. As most kingdoms in the game have their own regional bird variants, such as the Metro Kingdom housing pigeons, the bird which lands on Mario's nose will be native to the area he's sleeping in. However, there is also an extremely rare chance that instead of a native bird, a UFO will land on Mario's nose instead. A UFO which is actually found in the Moon Kingdom, which must be caught to get one of the region's power moons. With this in mind, the UFO will never land on Mario if he is sleeping in the Moon Kingdom itself, likely because doing so would result in a potentially simple manner of catching the UFO and completing the objective. These are some pretty cool details, but Mario Party Superstars actually has a rather uncool glitch that could leave players somewhat peeved. In early versions of the game, a rare glitch could occur while playing the Ice Rink Risk minigame, which could result in the minigame never coming to an end and the game essentially being softlocked. After all players were eliminated, the camera would fly upwards and show an infinite grey void, while only the sounds of the wind could be heard forever. This would of course be disappointing, but you might not be quite as let down as some diehard Mario Party fans when they felt they had been robbed of their beloved buttholes. The bobsled run minigame sees players riding a penguin sled in a race, having appeared in the earlier Mario Party 2, with the penguins the player rides having originally featured a small X in place of their butthole. Fans were disappointed to see that new versions of this beloved minigame removed this butthole. Although this may seem to be what's happened at first glance, the Mario Party Superstars version of this minigame is in fact based on the Mario Party 1 iteration, which used actual sleds in place of penguins. Thus, there is no butthole to be taken at all. Disheartening still, I'm sure, but not quite as much of a misgiving as some may have previously believed. Breath of the Wild has its own little secrets in regards to the monumental divine beasts. While these walking puzzles may have disappointed some fans of the franchise as they replaced the more traditional dungeons, this didn't stop them having some interesting unseen aspects. Each element of the new generation of Zelda games seems to have a deep level of consideration, and the music that plays while aboard these giants is no different. If the player listens closely, it's possible to hear a message in Morse code, specifically a message of SOS. with the possible reason being that it was part of the distress call from the champions sent out when they were attacked by the Blight of Ganon 100 years prior to the start of the game. Of course, the success of Breath of the Wild fueled hype for its sequel, originally dubbed rather succinctly as Sequel to Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Before Tears of the Kingdom released, a handful of fans pointed out that, based on the game's trailers, Tears of the Kingdom seemed to look a lot more like Breath of the Wild DLC than a full game in its own right. So it might be interesting for you to hear that Tears of the Kingdom was in fact initially conceived as a DLC installment for the original Breath of the Wild. However, producer Ig Aonuma elected to bolster the project's concepts and transform it into a fully-fledged follow-up. This was in part due to the team having far too many ideas that they wanted to include, a goal that wasn't really possible to reach 
when using the existing base code for Breath of the Wild. Aonuma told Kotaku, when we released the DLC for Breath of the Wild, we realized that this was a great way to add more elements to the same world. But when it comes down to technical things, DLC is pretty much data you're adding to a pre-existing title. And so we wanted to add bigger changes. DLC is not enough, and that's why we thought maybe a sequel would be a good fit. At least the folks who thought Tears of the Kingdom would be no more than a full price cash-in on something that could have just been DLC were pleasantly surprised when this game released. The dark and broody tones of Tears of the Kingdom were strong, just like in our next Switch exclusive game, Shin Mikami Tensei V. A statement released by character and demon designer Masayuki Doi reveals that Hayataro was originally created for the purpose of being the first demon that the player would encounter and recruit into their team, with the team even considering having the protagonist ride Hayataro as a sort of partner in crime relationship but it was dropped as a result of technical circumstances. Doi also revealed in the same interview that Hayataro was selected for an untold purpose that was never realized in the game's final release. The only clue Doi gave to the demon's original use was that it would surprise many players if they were to hear it. Intriguing. Despite being inspired by both the Norse god of youth who shares the same name, as well as the folktale of Little Red Riding Hood, the demon Idun was also inspired by an unlikely source. Japanese idols. Once again, Doi provided some insight into this, stating that this stemmed from, quote, the idea she'd likely be popular among all the gods who would woo her for her apples. Whether that innuendo was intentional or not, who knows. Doi also spoke about the design for the demon Kaya no Hime and how it was a remix on an existing design from Shin Mikami Tensei 4. It's fair to say that there is a large volume of work on demons which have yet to be fully imagined, with Doi having stated, there are so many more design ideas and demons that we've stockpiled for potential using in the future, so if you ever get the chance, we'd love to bring them out. Speaking of demons, or monsters, it's time for some surprisingly interesting Pokemon Scarlet and Violet trivia. Toad School and Toad Scroll, divergent evolutions of Tentacool and Tentacruel, have some hidden secrets that could only be discovered through reverse engineering and some analysis. The names of these two Pokemon in the game's data are Okagingu and Okakiaradosu, which suggests that their lives began as something entirely different. Rather than referencing both Tentacool and Tentacruel, these names instead reference the names of Magikarp, known as Koi King in Japan, and its evolution, Gyarados. This would suggest that the games were originally going to feature divergent evolutions of the Magikarp variety instead of Tentacool. However, there is no other data relating to these scrap Pokemon versions besides their names. Flowersblooms15 on Twitter has pointed out, however, that there is a suspiciously off-looking Magikarp statue that can be found in Pokemon Legends Arceus, with them speculating this may be a possible look at the originally intended design of this new take on the infamously useless fish. With Arceus being developed at the same time as Scarlet and Violet, nothing much seems to stand in the way of this as a possible hypothesis. Now, at least for me, Magikarp invokes a deep-rooted fear, much like this Nets game, the Resident Evil HD remaster. In the original release of this remaster, created as an exclusive for the GameCube, the MO Disc Reader was simply a GameCube console. However, for the HD remaster version of the game, the MO Disc Reader was altered again, as a result of it having been released on a multitude of platforms to be something slightly more generic as a means of avoiding having to use the console created by Nintendo, even in the Nintendo Switch version of the title. Another alteration was made to the game's final boss in this HD remaster release when Chris Redfield Field and Jill Valentine face up against the terror-inducing tyrant. After they unload a rocket right into the monster's face, the HD version introduces a rather more volatile explosion than its earlier release, now covering up what remains of the tyrant. 
A bit of a weird case of censorship, a bit less gore, but a more violent explosion. Paper Mario the Origami King is a name that, like Resident Evil, makes people cower in fear after continuing the trend of not really being all that much like a Paper Mario game. Putting that debate aside, we want to focus on a cool glitch pertaining to one of the game's out-of-bounds secrets. In the game, a piranha plant can be found in an inaccessible location, which leads to a very curious, if not slightly glitchy, battle. Starting a fight against this piranha plant will instead put the player up against four toads in an arena with a blue background and five rings where they would usually be four. This, of course, begs the question of why, but it leads us to explore an earlier discovery made in the first Paper Mario release on the Nintendo 64. Some unreachable enemies placed around the game's environment would default to a certain battle ID that would correspond with a fight against just a simple Goomba, likely put in place as a simple test fight. In Origami King, it seems that developers made a similar decision, and encountering an enemy without an assigned fight ID will default to this four-toed battle, which is almost certainly a test battle that was left on the disc. From one not-so-beloved game to one that has a particularly big fan. According to games journalist Dan Rickert, John Cena was actually a huge advocate for Samus's 2D return after Metroid Fusion. Allegedly, Cena would repeatedly express his desires for there to be a new 2D Metroid game to representatives at Nintendo during his advertising stint promoting the Switch. After the release of Metroid Dread, Nintendo sent Cena a copy of the game, to which his representatives responded with a message of his love for the game. This would explain Cena sharing a Samus Aran meme on his Instagram. Another interesting note is that while Metroid Samus Returns' initial codename was Matadora, the name for a killer who is a woman, Metroid Dread's internal codename was Kazadora, meaning Hunter who is a woman, both seemingly to reference Samus. But Dread's project name may have actually inspired an aspect of the final game that anyone can see. As pointed out by Mr. Cheese over on Twitter, my favourite Twitter handle by the way, the more prominent letters in Kazadora are Z. D and R, with ZDR being the planet that Metroid Dread takes place on. That's quite a sneaky easter egg. Or ZDR, you know? Now for everyone's favourite king of swing, it's Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze. On page 10 of Nintendo Power's 262nd issue, in a feature titled The Score, the results of a large-scale poll from the magazine's readers gives us some insights to their audience's opinions. One of the statistics shown is that Funky Kong was voted the most wanted Kong who wasn't playable in Donkey Kong Country Returns, even more so than Dixie Kong. This information could have possibly been taken on board by the game's developers at Retro, resulting in Funky Kong's inclusion as a playable character for the first time. Speaking of Funky Kong, when players exit the game shop as Funky, talks sometimes suggest that the player should give him the old banana slammer, dude. A reference to Donkey Kong's much-loved catchphrase in the gigantic air quotes cult classic Donkey Kong Country animated series. Bananas! The game's homages aren't exclusive to previous Donkey Kong outings, as is seen in Windmill Hills, the first level of Autumn Heights. Former retro artist Eric Kozlovsky posted on his blog all the way back in 2014, revealing some perhaps overlooked references. I also came up with the look for the windmills and the Swiss chalet-style houses. Initially, the interior of the giant windmill was going to be a bunch of smaller windmills, but I really wanted to do a DK take on the old Castlevania-style clock tower levels. 
There are even subtle regional differences in Tropical Freeze's different releases. In the English script, the third boss level in which the player fights against Baboom is called Triple Trouble. But the Japanese game has a very different title, which makes a reference to the region. It's named Oenochi Chorai Baboon Dukataru, which means, your life please, we are baboons. Oenochi Chorai is said to have been exclaimed by samurai when they issued a challenge, literally meaning, your life please followed by their introduction of themselves in a formal manner, just like the level name. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, Visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. The international world of video games has slowly been getting smaller as the years go by. The age of region-locked content, meaning that a game released for one region won't even work on a console released in another, has finally started to meet its end. This means that even if a game only receives a release on another continent, you can import the game and it would run on your locally released console. Though you might find that the language barrier is a bit of an issue of course, you uncultured swine. Not with localized games, mind you, but these titles come with their own challenges. References, idioms, or jokes that make complete sense in one region may make no sense at all in another, and some titles may be changed for cultural sensitivity reasons, meaning the game may ultimately have very different content between regions. The Switch has a great library of games, but some of the games needed to be altered for different audiences around the world, including titles like Mario Tennis Aces, Odyssey, Deltarune, Pokemon Legends Arceus, and of course, every true gamer's favourite game, Selfie Collection, The Dream Fashion Stylist. Though that last one may not be entirely on purpose. But before that, let's jump into Mario Tennis Aces. Some international changes can easily hide obscure easter eggs, like with Mario Tennis Aces stage, Basque Ruins, which features a temple within it, appropriately named the Temple of Basque. However, in the Japanese game, the stage is called Ruins of the Kingdom of Sol, and the temple is called the Temple of Sol. We won't blame you for not knowing why this is significant, as it seems the game's localizers missed it too. In one of Camelot's other titles, Golden Sun, there's a very important location in the game called Sol Sanctum, where the game's plot is truly set in motion. However, in the Japanese version of Golden Sun, this locale is actually called the Temple of Sol. So it seems that the developers at Camelot decided to sneak in a sly reference to their seminal RPG while working on Mario Tennis Aces. 
In an interview with Japan's Nintendo Dream magazine, several Camelot developers were interviewed about their work on Aces. Nintendo Dream brought up how the energy mechanics in Tennis Aces reminded them of Golden Sun's Psy energy mechanics, to which Camelot's co-founder, Shugo Takahashi, stated, I thought about Golden Sun Psy energy too. The energy mechanics in Aces almost seems like psychic energy, or ESP. So Golden Sun was clearly on the minds of the game's developers during Tennis Aces' development. But games that don't come from big blockbuster franchises often aren't as fortunate. Poorly translated games can be a real treat when you look at them with a sense of fun, but it should always be respected that translating a large volume of text from one language to another isn't a simple task. However, when a game is clearly meant to appeal to a younger audience, these mistakes can become an even bigger faux pas than usual. The game's selfie collection has the player take on the role of a shop owner, who must fulfill fashion requests for their clients. Some of the costumes that need to be created are a bit odd, of course, but the names of these outfits and the language of the clients is what isn't quite right. Heidi Mandolin from Legends of Localization has put together a fantastic page showing a huge number of these mistakes, with some of the game's more prominent outfit names including Long-Tailed Tit That Sucks Nectar, Shatter of Disaster That Approaches, and Forest Midget Minidress. Some of these pretty major issues turn up when the translators had to work out what to use for the word yujo, where they at two points used the word courtesan, but in all other places went with the more distinctly direct prostitute. This includes the choice of giving a character prostitute's hair, the faithful prostitute baby girl outfit, or if you want them to have a more positive vibe, why not dress up like a pleasure prostitute? There are, of course, an incredible number of other mistakes, including moments where words aren't even translated at all, or if they are, they make almost no sense. Have you ever worn a merciful emotion? What about gentle your son? I wouldn't mind picking up a hidden face woman hat in the future. It would complement my new deep beautiful woman salary. I can even accessorize it with my handcrafted tea fragrant flower hairpin. At times, it seems even the localization team didn't know how to condense the phrasing required to explain some outfit pieces, like six arrows penetrating half the body, the eyebrow of a literary writer who begins to think, and dispenser in a drugstore for mysterious arms. Some items, of course, will be slightly more confusing than others, which leads to garments like douche meteor, the genocide suit, or how about my, or how about my future haircut, grilled sweet potatoes with autumn breeze. There are honestly so many examples of bad translations with this game that you should absolutely check out the full page on Legends of Localization after this video. But until then, how about some more Mario? Game companies don't make a huge number of changes when localizing their titles for another country, but some changes can be slightly confusing in nature, as is usually the case with anything being sent over to China. New Super Mario Bros. U Deluxe managed to make its way into the Chinese market, and one of the changes they made to the game seemed a slightly odd choice. The power block is a staple for the Mario series, with the word power being displayed on the side in all different language releases, save for China. 
Here, the block displays a series of squares instead, which seems to be depicted as wrapping around the block entirely. The reason for this alteration isn't entirely known, but it could be the result of the Chinese prohibition against the use of English words appearing in games in the region, though this has not been confirmed. Other changes for Chinese releases of Switch games are similarly small in nature, but can also be just as odd. Once again, in one of the most popular Mario titles to date, Super Mario Odyssey, one of the game's outfits had to be altered, the pirate costume. In most versions of the game, the pirate outfit has Mario wear the standard seaworthy garments of a large captain's jacket, eye patch, and a tricorn hat with a skull motif. Not only was the outfit itself altered for the Chinese market, but any reference to it being the outfit of a pirate was also removed entirely. Here, it was renamed to the Noble Costume, and the outfit itself had the removal of the skull from his hat and a complete lack of an eye patch. The outfit's description was also changed to Noble Outfit, fit for wearing at sea. But the costume's jacket does closely fit that of ancient Chinese nobility. While also not being all too different from what many pirates from the region would have worn, the game's depiction of a pirate may have been considered too western for Chinese regulators, though this is simply speculation. Some games that are localized to other regions actually end up including even more sly easter eggs, as is the case with Captain Toad Treasure Tracker. One easter egg added to Treasure Tracker is actually a reference to the game itself, though specifically its own translation. The fourth section of the first chapter in the English release of the game is called Onward Captain Toad. This name isn't entirely original for the stage, but it isn't the same in the Japanese release, where it's called Advanced Captain Toad, this is because Onward Captain Toad is actually the name of the game in Japan, rather than Treasure Tracker. Clubhouse Games 51 Worldwide Classics didn't have many changes to the game itself among the title's various language versions, and all of the games remain regardless of the region in which the game is released. One difference, however, comes in what those games entail and what that means when it comes to who can buy the game. Although the game may seem entirely innocent to us in the West, in South Korea and Australia, it was decided that additional protection should be made to prevent the game from being accessible to children. And by this, we mean that the game was given a mature rating. A curiosity when this game received very low age ratings in many other countries. The reason for this age rating is because of local laws put in place to protect children from gambling, even if it is just simulated, which means the game needed to have a higher rating due to the inclusion of several casino and gambling games like Blackjack, Texas Hold'em Poker, and Richie Mahjong. A hugely popular game from a Western developer, and a title that has been played a huge amount on the Switch, is Deltarune, the successor to Undertale. With this in mind, the game makes several references to its predecessor in some of the game's humour, such as in Chapter 2. The cell that Queen places Chris in, decorated with items based on their internet search history, includes two holograms of Toriel. In the game's Japanese release, this is only a single hologram of Toriel. This is because of the pun involved in this joke, being that Chris mistyped video game piano tutorial, and that tutorial sounds like tutorials. This cannot easily be conveyed in the Japanese language, so it was simply dropped as to not confuse Japanese players. Another difference occurs in Chapter 2's Weird Root. In the form of a VCR-style HUD that appears during Spam to Neo's ultimate attack. In the Japanese localization, these are translated to use kanji, and with that, an additional pun was included. The icon for pause was replaced with teishi, translating to stop 
or pause. However, this is not the standard kanji for the word, including the symbol for death. Additionally, the rec icon, an obvious pun in itself, was replaced with satsuechu, or now recording. However, the satsu kanji has been replaced for the kanji meaning kill. These puns also continue a running theme with Spamton, and his habit of replacing the Japanese words dai and desu with the phonetically similar English words dai and death throughout the Japanese script. One of the most popular recent releases comes in Pokemon's deviation from traditional gameplay in Legends Arceus. The game doesn't actually have a huge number of differences between regions in regards to actual gameplay, but there's one interesting thing about the game's title. Every single mainline Pokemon game up until this point has been titled Pocket Monsters in full, whereas Western releases are contracted to Pokemon. For Legends Arceus, the game's Japanese title used the Western Pokemon naming. And yes, this game is part of the core Pokemon series and not a spin-off, which is explicitly stated on the game's Japanese website. But you're here for differences, not similarities. So we're going to talk about one of our favorite new Pokemon from Arceus, Cleavor. Cleavor is a new potential evolution for Scyther. And although the Pokemon's English name is clearly a straightforward play on the word Cleaver, the Pokemon's name in other languages is quite interesting. Its Japanese name is Basagiri, likely a combination of Basari, meaning with a single stroke, along with the word Kamakiri, meaning Mantis. This naming scheme can be seen in other languages too, with the Pokemon's German name being Axantor, essentially meaning Axe Mantis, which is pretty appropriate considering the monster's design. French localizers, on the other hand, chose to make its name Ache Gâteau, again a pun on the word axe, but also pruning shears. This might seem like not a very badass thing to reference for an evolution of Scyther, but the same wordplay can be found in Scyther's original French name, Insecateur. Apologies to all the um, French viewers out there. Hello and welcome to Did You Know Gaming Extra. In today's episode, we'll be covering some trivia for a variety of games, both new and old, Nintendo and non-Nintendo, which released on the Switch. It's been an entire year since we did an extra video on Switch games, and plenty of new trivia has since surfaced. Our first game released over a year ago as well, Luigi's Mansion 3. The final game was pretty different to what was first shown, and even further from the original plan. The developers over at Next Level Games considered having players spend coins to buy hints from Professor E. Gard. However, they cut the idea due to a belief that it could discourage players from exploring. Next Level also didn't plan for the players to be able to capture Morty, but changed their minds once they thought some players might want to capture every single ghost. The hotel had many interesting changes as well. The game was originally planned to have more multi-floor puzzles and cues, such as the player finding water dripping on the floor and realizing it to be a clue to explore the room above. But these puzzles were considered too confusing for a fair amount of gamers. These puzzles also took the most effort to plan out and develop, so the team cut their losses and scaled them back. The hotel was also planned to have fire and ice-themed floors, but they were thought to be a bit too predictable and didn't quite line up with the vibe of a themed hotel. Another cut floor idea was a theme park, with concept art for the last resort showing a ferris wheel and roller coaster. Even more Mario titles have been released over the past year, with one of them being a compilation of past critically acclaimed platformers. Super Mario 3D All-Stars is a compilation of Mario 64, Sunshine, and Mario Galaxy, but was treated as a game in its own right within Nintendo. 
The game was internally referred to as Stardust by the Big N, which is evidenced by code associated with Super Mario 64 on the cartridge. Interestingly, code within the game also references the Nintendo 64 games Kirby 64 The Crystal Shards, Mario Golf, Paper Mario, Mario Tennis, Perfect Dark, and Pokemon Snap. These references could be evidence of additional ports to the Switch, or even tests for N64 functionality in Nintendo Switch Online. But unfortunately, they're most likely just leftovers from testing the N64 emulation for 3D All-Stars. They may also be leftovers from the Wii U Virtual Console emulator, which has support for these games and similar configuration data to the 3D All-Stars N64 emulator. Another interesting fact about 3D All-Stars is that each game has configuration files that tell the emulator how to run, and Mario Sunshine has several different control schemes in the configuration file. One of these schemes is for a computer keyboard. This, along with using the Vulkan Graphics API, which is apparently easily ported to various platforms, suggests the emulators in 3D All-Stars were developed on a PC before being ported to the Switch. Yet another Mario game released in the past year was an RPG with a mixed reception. Paper Mario The Origami King. One aspect of the series that was sorely missing for several games, but made a return in Origami King, was the inclusion of partner characters. Interestingly, there were going to be more partners than what appeared in the final game. The Sombrero Guy from Autumn Mountain may have been planned to be a temporary party member, just like Spike and Bone Goomba, but ended up being left out. Altering the code through save file hacking makes Sombrero Guy fully functional as a partner, and adds an otherwise unused graphic to the pause menu. The game has another interesting fact surrounding its partner characters. If the player inspects the steering wheel of the Princess Peach cruise ship while Bobby the Bomb is next to Mario, he'll remark how he once dreamed of being a captain or an admiral. This is a reference to Admiral Bobbery, Mario's Bomb partner from Paper Mario The Thousand Year Door on the GameCube. Moving on from Mario games to a title that honestly couldn't be much further away from Italian plumbers, Astral Chain. In an interview with Polygon, Astral Chain's director Takahisa Tara mentioned that the game didn't actually start off as a sci-fi cyberpunk-style game, and was actually more of a fantasy title where players used magic. However, Nintendo suggested that Platinum Games take a change in direction, as at the time, the video game industry was oversaturated with fantasy-themed titles. This change in direction drew inspiration from many different sources. Tara stated how anime like Ghost in the Shell and Appleseed had an impact on the game's motif. Not to mention the game's character designer, Masakazu Katsura, also draws for a manga called Zetman, which is also sci-fi. Even the game's mechanics were impacted by other media. The game's concept of controlling two characters at the same time was inspired by the 1983 puzzle arcade title, Libble Rabble. In the game, players control two colored arrows and wrap them around pegs to surround and harvest small creatures within a time limit. This mechanic was also one of the very first ideas for Astral Chain. An unexpected success for the Switch in 2020 was Clubhouse Games, which sold around 2 million units as of the making of this video. For whatever reason, the game has two different titles between the North American and UK versions. In the US, the game is referred to as Clubhouse Games 51 Worldwide Classics, whereas in the UK it's called 51 Worldwide Games. Another change is that Checkers and Toy Soccer are called Drafts and Toy Football in the UK release. One of the best secrets in Clubhouse Games can be found within the golf game, which has up to nine holes. If you were to take a closer look at all of these holes, you might notice how they have a striking resemblance to the first nine holes from the golf mode in Wii Sports, and in turn, the courses from the NES game Golf. 
From a surprise success to a surprise disaster, Cooking Mama Cookstar was briefly released physically and through Nintendo's eShop on the Switch, but the game was later made unavailable for purchase through either. The original rumor behind why was that the game was using the Switch's hardware to mine cryptocurrency, but this was later discredited by the game's producers. It was later revealed that the reason for the game's quick removal from sale was due to a lawsuit between the game's publisher, Planet Entertainment, and IP owners, Office Create. The lawsuit claimed that Planet Entertainment's license to use the Cooking Mama IP expired just a single day before Cookstar's release in North America. Talk about terrible timing. The game was also set to release on the PlayStation 4, but according to some, this version wasn't even officially approved by the license holder, and of course, never released. Speaking of games that never came out, a Nintendo Switch version of the extreme winter sports game Steep was planned at one point, and even entered development. However, according to the Steep Twitter account, the Switch release was cancelled in order for the development team to focus on making more content for the other console versions of the game. Steep would end up releasing on PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC, but unfortunately, no Switch. Another obscure Switch title is Rive Ultimate Edition. Although this title was actually released, it does have an interesting connection to a cancelled game. Rive Ultimate Edition is a console-specific special edition of Rive that only had a mere 5,000 physical copies printed. This game's most interesting secret can only be found if the player changes their name on their Switch profile to Two Tribes. If they do this, then boot up Rive, there'll be a new option to launch a demo for a game called Three Tribes. If this sounds familiar, that's because we covered Three Tribes in our cancelled DS games video. Three Tribes was an action puzzle game being developed for Game Boy Advance and DS, and until Rive Ultimate Edition, it was completely inaccessible to the general public. Now players can play around with this obscure cancelled game as much as they please. The Switch is a pretty outstanding console, and of course, any great console has to have a strong library of games under its belt. Lucky for us, that is the case here. With every new Nintendo console comes new entries in some absolutely classic franchises, such as with New Pokemon Snap, Fire Emblem Three Houses, and Metroid Dread, or perhaps even remakes of classics like Pokemon Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl. We'll talk about all of these intriguing games and a few more throughout this episode. But before we get to those, perhaps we should start with a franchise that has slightly less acclaim, though historically not by much, Sonic the Hedgehog. Now look, Sonic has a reputation for being a, a bit wank, but that doesn't mean everything released donning the Sonic moniker is a total waste of time. Sonic Colors released for the Nintendo Wii a fair while back and was actually quite a competent entry into the Sonic series. So much so that it even received a remaster to celebrate Sonic's 30th birthday. Sadly, just because the original version was great doesn't mean that a remaster was a surefire piece of stellar content. On release, Sonic Colors Ultimate was a buggy mess, with a substantial number of glitches that weren't present in its Wii release. And this is even true for the title's internal files. Looking through the game's data, it's possible to find a huge number of unused files. Not just those that might have been scrapped at some point, but even development logs and .exe applications for converting files for use by the in-game engine. The number of unused files is astronomical to say the least, but in a particular 
particularly interesting case of unused textures. It seems the team which remastered the game, Blind Squirrel Games, were towing the line with what they could get away with. Two unused renders appear within the game's data that weren't ever created by Sega, but rather fans online who posted their creations to DeviantArt. A render of Supersonic, created by Nibrock Rock, was possibly intended to be used for the Supersonic menu in the Options satellite, while a render of Classic Tales, created by Mike9711, was also possibly used at some stage as a placeholder for Tales' save. Another file which appears in the data is a poorly drawn image of Sonic. Similar, but not exactly the same, as that of the Sonic meme that made waves several years ago. Possibly a placeholder for a menu icon of Sonic running which, also like these other textures, never ends up being used in the game at all. And speaking of Sega, gaming message board Reset Era discovered and shared what seemed to be an internal image of an II amiibo and its packaging from Super Monkey Ball. The characters on Amiibo are generally from Nintendo's roster, but they have opened up the process to some third parties who want to go the extra mile for their Switch releases. With the multi-game wonder Shovel Knight, Dark Souls, and Monster Hunter arriving in the toy line, Sega premiering an II figure to go along with the long-awaited re-release of Super Monkey Ball does make some sense. The character matches up with its design in Banana Mania, and the packaging almost matches up to past releases from third parties. It's also odd that Nintendo didn't announce the figure alongside the game at this year's E3-adjacent Nintendo Direct, as they'd have no reason to leave out that news and haven't hidden Amiibo announcements in separate events in the past. What instead puts the II Amiibo firmly in the fake category is its origins. The image was discovered on 4chan. Trolling the rest of the internet with completely made-up information is one of 4chan's favorite hobbies, and this intricately detailed image of an II Amiibo may just be the latest in a long line of fakeries. It isn't all too uncommon for some small elements of a game to change during localization across the world, and this is exactly what occurred with Fire Emblem Three Houses. The game had a simultaneous worldwide release, which made it possible for a few small errors to sneak in, such as unfortunate naming choices. For the character of Manuela, while she shares her name in the majority of the world's translations of the game, her name had to be changed for the Latin-Spanish release of Three Houses. Here, she's instead known as Miguela. The reason behind this is because the name Manuela in the Latin-Spanish language is effectively an analogy for masturbation, with Manuela being a way of talking about a man's hand but referred to in a female context, with the general implication being a man making love to his hand, or most simply, a guy giving himself a hand shandy. Other elements of the game's script were also changed in localization, such as a scene in which it suggested that Sylvain once flirted with the Scarecrow. In the original Japanese dialogue, Sylvain actually flirts with a man dressed as a woman. Both languages portray the comedic element to his flirting, but going about it in very different ways. Both versions of the conversation tie back to the fact that Sylvain considered the act an accident afterwards. It's not exactly a shocker, but it's likely the English writers decided to refocus this part of the game so as not to offend. Another highly praised title on the Switch is Bayonetta 2, a Wii U port that fans were very happy to see. The title had more of that same style and humor fans have come to expect from the mind of Hideki Kamiya, who's become known as somewhat of a wildcard on social media. Kamiya's signature source can be seen covering many aspects of the game. Particularly noteworthy is the inclusion of a certain taunt by Bayonetta. When taunting, there's a chance that she'll say, If you need to learn how to talk to a lady, ask your mum. And this isn't just a throwaway line. 
there's a bit of a reference hidden within it. On his Twitter account, Hideki Kamiya is known for responding with some rather blunt and cheeky replies, such as replying to people's questions with, ask your mum. This cheekiness was appropriately bestowed to Bayonetta in the game. With that said, one element of Bayonetta 2 actually didn't have Kamiya's approval, with him sharing his distaste of the title's box art on Twitter. The original version of the box featured a silver crescent moon with clouds covering it, while Bayonetta takes the center spot. Higher-ups, though it's unsure whether from Sega or Nintendo, removed the clouds, made the moon full and golden, and decided that the two in the logo should be red. The US and Japanese releases of the game use this box art, while the PAL releases use a different version. Why these changes were made is unknown, but all releases of Bayonetta 2 on the Switch use the PAL cover possibly after Kamiya expressed his distaste for the alterations in the US and Japanese box arts online. It's also possible to find other early elements of the game within the game's data. Data miners have found an early version of Bayonetta's default character model, which was shown off during an E3 demo. The main notable difference between the two are in her earrings, with the early version donning a Triforce. You may have even noticed that the character render of Bayonetta on the earlier mentioned Wii U box art wore these early earrings, with them being replaced with the final version on the cover of the Switch release. Now, Pokemon doesn't really need an intro, but if you somehow don't know, there was a sequel made to a classic N64 title which involves taking photographs of the lovable collectible creatures rather than capturing them. New Pokemon Snap was a bit of a deviation from expectations at the time of its announcement, with the Pokemon series not seeing many new spin-offs, and fans essentially giving up hope of ever seeing a new Snap title. But what was actually interesting about New Pokemon Snap was that it included a couple of new characters that would be central to the game's plot, but they weren't actually all that new, at least not to fans who spent far too much time looking at the scenery of the new Pokemon film that came out on Christmas Day the year before, Secrets of the Jungle. In New Pokemon Snap, the player will meet Rita and Phil, who join them on their photography journey. Both of these characters could be seen by audiences four months prior in Secrets of the Jungle, though it's unlikely fans would have realized, seeing as they remain in the background. The game sneakily references their appearance in the film, with multiple pictures of the scenery featured throughout Secrets of the Jungle being visible on the wall of Professor Mirror's laboratory, including the Millie Town Pokemon Center, the Great Tree in the Forest of Okoya, and the Biotopy Company building. One of the game's loading screens even describes these as landscape photographs taken by Rita outside of Lentil. Now we know we might just be getting old, but the mainline Pokemon games simply don't tickle our pickles quite like they used to. It isn't for us to judge what you deem of high value, of course, but one piece of information for Pokemon Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl really just rubs us in the wrong way. The Pokemon franchise is well known for each new release having two versions on two cartridges, with the primary difference being that some creatures are only available in each version. With both packs you can catch them all. And possibly some minor story differences. This practice made the games an exciting playground activity when you'd link up to trade or battle your teams with your friends. But the two versions, Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl, differ in this latest release. While each game wasn't exactly stuffed to the brim with unique features for one version or the other, when it comes to these new remakes, they don't even have their own unique ROM. The game's data includes both titles in their entirety, with only a simple flag in the game's code to determine whether it's Diamond or Pearl which will boot. 
Essentially, when you buy one game, you actually buy both, but the developers chose to not let you access the other one without hacking the game's data. What makes this slightly more sinister in nature is that Nintendo even released the games in a double pack, meaning the consumer is buying two copies of the same game data, just with a different default flag set for each cartridge. Another thing related to this remake involves a slight oversight, which, on the surface, doesn't sound like it had caused many problems, but ultimately it really did. An incredible feature of this remake which didn't appear in the DS original is the ability for the player to walk in a diagonal direction. But in doing so, a potential soft-locking issue was introduced. In the Snowpoint City Gym, the player must navigate the building by sliding along the floor in straight lines. But because these mechanics never considered the game's new diagonal movement, the puzzle becomes all a bit ridiculous. Not only can the player essentially attempt to bypass the entire gym's central puzzle by simply wiggling their way up the side of the staircase up to the gym leader, but they may also find themselves trapped while attempting to do so. Which isn't so great when the game includes an autosave feature and you may be permanently trapped in this position. Heads up, if you do try to do this, turn off your autosave feature. You're welcome. 2D Metroid finally made its much-anticipated return on the Switch in 2021 with the release of Metroid Dread, a title we never thought we'd see again after its original cancellation on the Nintendo DS. Be sure to check out our Metroid Dread video, by the way. Some new adversaries to the franchise are the EMI, or Extraplanetary Multiform Mobile Identifier. These robots may seem pretty unique to Metroid, but they aren't actually all too unique in sci-fi media. The Emmy share a pretty strong resemblance, both in their appearance and their story, to the main antagonist of sci-fi film Red Planet released in the year 2000, called Amy, or A-M-E-E. -E. The Amy, or Autonomous Mapping, Exploration and Evasion, is a robot intended to assist and protect a team of astronauts during their expedition to Mars. However, the robot is damaged during a crash landing, resulting in it turning hostile and hunting down its former team. This isn't the only inspiration either. The Emmy also references the Japanese OVA Gunbuster with the material it's made from and who manufactured it. The Excelion Star Corporation is named after the ship of the same name featured in the anime OVA, and the materials of the Emmy is said to be the strongest in the universe, a reference to Elterium, the name of the human flagship featured in the final battle of Gunbuster, as well as the incredibly resistant material that it's made from. That's quite a few references for something that, on the surface, seems quite original. The Nintendo Switch launched on March 7, 2017, to critical and commercial success. But while the Switch soared Nintendo's profits and shares to record numbers, a hidden problem lurked under the surface, Joy-Con drift. In this video, we'll be looking at why Joy-Con drift happens, the ongoing legal troubles and the fallout from the issue itself, and Nintendo's response. But before we jump in, we'd like to remind everyone that Nintendo has often prided itself on its durable hardware. Before the DS released, Nintendo tested the system's hinges hundreds of times to ensure it could survive a lot of usage. They even dropped the DS from several stores to study how it might better survive a fall. At their dedicated store in New York, Nintendo even proudly displayed a Game Boy that survived a bombing in the Gulf War. This is partly why fans are surprised to see the lack of care put into the Joy-Con hardware, which is fragile compared to Nintendo's other devices. Even the Wii U was extremely durable, having an unusually tough touchscreen for the time. But before the Switch had even released, users were having issues due to faulty hardware. 
On February 22, 2017, reporters who got to review copies of the Switch started to experience weird syncing issues, mostly with the left Joy-Con. The syncing issue was caused by the left Joy-Con Bluetooth signal being disrupted by the player's hand or other wireless devices. Nintendo first responded to these reports with the following statement to Polygon. We have received some reports and are looking into it. As with all Nintendo video game systems, we will continue to monitor the performance of Nintendo Switch hardware and software, and make improvements when necessary. For help with any hardware or software-related questions, visit support.nintendo.com. On their support page, Nintendo recommended players shouldn't place their Switch docks behind a TV or near an aquarium, as this could cause wireless interference. They also recommended keeping the Switch and Joy-Cons away from wireless devices, wires, and cords. Nintendo initially stated that cell phones might interfere with the Switch as well, but later removed them from the list. Two weeks after the Switch launched, Nintendo confirmed these issues were caused by a manufacturing variant, and they'd let users experiencing the problem have their Joy-Cons repaired for free. Despite Nintendo offering free repairs and somewhat addressing the manufacturing issues, there still seems to be many users having syncing issues with the left Joy-Con. Years later, online tutorials for fixing the problem are still being made and getting hundreds of thousands of views. A popular solution was inserting a small piece of conductive foam to help resolve the weak wireless signal from the left Joy-Con. The weak signal was just the first of many issues with the Joy-Con, however. After the Switch released, players noticed that inputs weren't being registered by their games. Characters would move on their own in a single direction, and players had difficulty registering new inputs. This phenomenon would later be called Joy-Con drift, and has since been experienced by a large chunk of the Switch user base. While this is by no means scientific, a tweet by our own Push Dustin asking people to retweet if they'd been impacted by Joy-Con drift got over 30,000 retweets on Twitter. As far as we can tell, there seems to be two potential causes for Joy-Con drift. Firstly, dust getting its way into the controller and underneath the rubber cap may be a cause. The rubber cap is designed to keep the interior clean, but sometimes particles can still make their way through. Another possible cause is the contacts used by the controller to register joystick movements become completely worn down over time. In order to fix this, Nintendo generally recommends recalibrating the analog sticks in the Switch's menu. If this doesn't work, they recommend users send in their Joy-Cons for repairs, which depending on your region and if you're under warranty or not, could be quite costly. In some cases, it's cheaper for players to just buy a new Joy-Con instead of repairing it. Many users have tried using compressed air or isopropyl alcohol to fix the Joy-Con drift. Others have tried taking the Joy-Con fully apart, with Joy-Con repair kits having over a thousand reviews on Amazon Japan. And on Amazon.com, there's even a replacement kit with over 7,500 reviews. If you consider the fact that only around 1 in 10 Amazon users leave reviews, this particular kit alone has potentially sold around 7 750,000 units. This is a staggering number considering that some variants of official Joy-Cons have fewer reviews than the repair kit. In 2019, Nintendo released a revised console called the Switch Lite. This undockable device had the Joy-Cons built into the console. When this variant was announced, many fans hoped Nintendo would fully resolve Joy-Con drift, as the Lite's Joy-Cons were built into the system. Unfortunately, shortly after the variant was released, reports came out that the Lite could also get drift. This was a huge inconvenience 
inconvenience to light owners, as they'd have to send their whole console to Nintendo for repairs if their device got the drift. In addition, due to shipping regulations, only four Joy-Con controllers can be sent in a single repair form. The COVID-19 pandemic also impacted Nintendo's ability to timely repair Joy-Cons, as many repair centers reduced working personnel and put more safety measures in place. Several lawsuits have been filed all around the world relating to Joy-Con drift. In July 2019, Chemicals Schwartz Kreiner and Donaldson Smith filed a class action lawsuit. They began collecting reports from players in an effort to show the widespread impact of Joy-Con drift. The complaint was filed in the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Washington, Nintendo of America's home state. The law firm said that it's pursuing litigation aggressively in order to get the best outcome for consumers. Over 5,500 Switch owners contacted Kreiner to report they'd been impacted by Joy-Con drift. Despite widespread reports on the issue, Nintendo's response to Joy-Con drift has been lackluster. At the height of the Joy-Con drift outrage, Nintendo responded with the following comment. At Nintendo, we take great pride in creating quality products and we are continuously making improvements to them. We are aware of recent reports that some Joy-Con controllers are not responding correctly. We want our consumers to have fun with Nintendo Switch, and if anything falls short of this goal, we always encourage them to visit support.nintendo.com so we can help. Many took issue with this seemingly non-comment, including Kreiner, who stated that Nintendo's response wouldn't change their stance and that they'd continue to pursue relief. The court didn't dismiss the case, instead compelling arbitration, which is essentially a lateral shift from the standard judiciary process but can still result in legally binding compensation. As of researching this video, the law firm is still working to pursue the case through the arbitration process. In Nintendo's defense, they have taken some responsibility. After the lawsuit was filed by Kreiner and Donald and Smith in July 2019, Nintendo began fixing controllers free of charge in certain regions. Vice News reported that Nintendo had an internal memo directing its support team to repair Joy-Cons for free, even if users were no longer under warranty. The typical warranty for most Nintendo products includes 90 days for accessories and 12 months for the consoles, but an additional class action lawsuit was filed in California in October 2020, with a mom and child being the center of that legal battle. The suit demands a jury trial and charges Nintendo with knowingly making and selling new Switches that suffer from the defect that can cause drifting. This lawsuit claims the child has had their Switch repaired several times by Nintendo, on average every three months even if the Joy-Cons were new or freshly repaired by Nintendo themselves. The United States isn't the only place where Nintendo has faced legal battles over the Switch. In May 2019, a French consumer advocacy organization called UFC Couchoisir called on Nintendo to offer Joy-Con repairs for free. Nintendo changed its policy in France in response. In 2020, the group alleged that Nintendo engaged in practices of planned obsolescence. Nintendo France pushed back against these claims, saying that only 1% of Switch owners in France were impacted, and most of those were repaired. However, this wasn't enough to prevent Nintendo's legal issues in Europe. The European Consumer Organization, or B. EUC represents over 40 different consumer organizations throughout Europe, and they've called for a formal investigation into Joy-Con drift after receiving nearly 25,000 complaints from European consumers. The BEUC told Eurogamer that in 88% of cases, Joy-Cons broke within the first two years of purchase. Despite Nintendo offering repairs in parts of Europe, the BEUC is concerned that Nintendo continues to knowingly sell faulty products to consumers. After it was reported the BEUC was calling for action, 
action, the European Commission released a statement saying it may investigate further and coordinate action against Nintendo. A spokesperson for the Commission told Eurogamer, We are preparing a new legislative initiative aiming to provide consumers with better information on product sustainability, including durability and better protection against certain practices, such as early obsolescence. The results of their investigation are definitely something to look out for, as it'll have an impact on the Switch's future. Before we finish talking about Joy-Con drift, we should acknowledge that hardware manufacturing issues are a recurring problem in the video game industry. So let's take a quick look at how Nintendo's competitors, Sony and Microsoft, responded to similar problems. One infamous issue was the Xbox 360's Red Ring of Death, or RROD. Three lights would light up around the console's power button, indicating an internal issue. While an official reason wasn't disclosed, some believe the RROD was caused by the graphics chip overheating. Many users became frustrated when their Xbox 360s just stopped working, and all kinds of quick fixes popped up online that claimed to fix the RROD. From using coins to wrapping the 360 in towels, players were eager to get their systems back up and running. Microsoft had a somewhat similar response to Nintendo, but they took responsibility much quicker. Shortly after the 360's launch, Microsoft stated that the console's failure rate was within the industry's typical 3-5% for a new device. But a few months later, then-Vice President of Microsoft's Interactive Entertainment Business Division, Peter Moore, published an open letter on the subject. Moore acknowledged the 360's problems, and announced that Microsoft would be extending the warranty of all Xbox 360's that get the RROD to three years. During the same era, the PlayStation 3 also suffered from hardware issues, but Sony didn't seem receptive to the complaints of consumers. The yellow light of death was an issue that impacted many original PS3s. It's usually caused by issues with the motherboard degrading and not being able to provide enough power to the GPU or the CPU, resulting in a yellow light. Since the console can get quite hot at times, these degradations can occur over long use of the PS3. After a report by the BBC spotlighting the yellow light of death, Sony made a statement saying, We entirely refute the suggestion that PS3 consoles have an inherent defect or other design issues. Of all PS3s, PS3 sold in the UK to date, fewer than one half of 1% of units have been reported as failing in circumstances where the yellow indicator is illuminated. All being said, the yellow light of death wasn't as widespread as the red ring of death, and may well have fallen in an acceptable range of failure for a major consumer product. Now let's take a look at Nintendo's latest response to the drift issue. On July 3, 2020, the president of Nintendo, Shuntaro Furukawa, finally acknowledged the issues affecting Joy-Con controllers. He stated, Regarding the Joy-Con controllers, we apologize for any inconvenience experienced by consumers. We are continuously working to improve our products, but because the Joy-Con controllers are currently subject to a class action lawsuit in the US, I have no information to share about any specific actions we have taken. But as of this video, many fans are still waiting for some kind of relief from Nintendo. Despite the huge success the Switch has brought Nintendo, for some fans, the Joy-Con drift has left a negative impression of the company. Memes about Joy-Con drift continue to be shared as more and more players become I'm frustrated by Nintendo's lackluster response. Did you also know that the 64DD expansion of Ocarina of Time, Ura Zelda, was also planned to include online play? Or that there's a cancelled Zelda 2 remake? For more facts, check out the video on screen, and we'll see you in the next time. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. 
we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.